Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that, uh, wow, that you're such an awesome God. And even though I feel a bit self-conscious every time I see that um, video, I get a little bit easier as time goes on. And I'm just so grateful for the gifts of the men that you've placed in my life and for their encouragement. And so grateful for this church and uh, the body that we are in Christ and how much fun it is to do what we do. Thank you for that privilege, Lord. And we pray now that you'd guide us as we look at today's message. There's a lot of things I've learned from it, and I pray that I can convey those in a clear um, fashion for all of us to learn. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So I forgot to move the page back from last time. I got to move back two pages. That's because there's 58 verses in the thing we're going to talk about today, a long one. We're going to be skipping around a bit. We're going to be talking about David. We're going to continue on our series on David that we were on last year. And if you recall, we're talking about the early years of David. So we've got two more of the early years, and then we're going to move into a new section in his life. We're going to do that for our uh, summer series. All right? David's a fascinating guy. So much about him that is so interesting. And today we're going to talk about the story that is most interesting and most famous about David. David meets who? Goliath. You know, David and Goliath. It's the big story that you hear about all the time in Sunday school. And you hear it if you talk, listen to talk shows, you listen to political or sports talk shows. Almost every day somebody says, well, this person's a Goliath, this person's a David. You hear the story all the time, right? It's always going around. It's being used and often misused. It's often talked about as if it were a Jewish fable or uh, some kind of a Christian myth or Sunday school tale for children. And today, what I'd like you to see is that this is the real deal. Goliath and David were real human beings, and they were historical people. And we're going to look at this as a historical narrative to help you better understand what happened. But in the process, there are always lessons to learn because the same God of the Bible who works in our lives today, the same Spirit of God that enables us to do things, is the same Spirit of God that worked in David's life, even though he didn't have as much information as we do today. And so we can learn from the things that he did uh, and apply them to our own lives. Like I said, there's 58 verses here, so we're going to skip around a bit. But we'll look at the story and get the basic gist of it. We're going to start by introducing Goliath to you and Goliath's challenge. Um, They were meeting in battle formation. They were in the Valley of Elah, which was in Judah, and they were lined up across from each other. And in the middle of them, it was called the Ephes Damim, which means the boundary of blood. Well, that's not very nice, but that's because a lot of blood was shed there. And this was, remember, this is a very dark and barbaric time where David and maybe a couple hundred people or so were the only people that were following God around, and they were mostly spread out. And so under this scene comes this giant Goliath, and he walks out. The description of Goliath is uh, possibly the the most description ever given of anybody in the Bible. So it's important that we read it. So let's go ahead and take a look at what it has to say about him, starting in verse 4 of 1 Samuel chapter 17. A champion named Goliath was from Gath, who was from Gath, which was nearby, came out of the Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall. I mean, that just sort of naturally stops you when you're reading it. He's over nine feet tall? That's pretty big. Um, That's taller than the fans here. He was a big, big dude. Now, 
Sometimes people say, well, how did he get that big? Well, he was, a, he was a giant. He was probably from the Anakites. He probably was not originally a Philistine. He may have married into the Philistines or may have been recruited by the Philistines. He's now part of the Philistine nation, but he was probably from the Anakites. They were a line of giants. And people say, well, that's not possible because people can't, a man doesn't grow to be nine feet tall. We all know that. But that's not true, really, even in our own day or near our own day. If you go back to Guinness World, um, World Book of Records, you find that in 1940, Robert Persing um, Wadlow died. Um, he was in his early 20s, and he was 8 feet 11 and a half inches. Now, he had a disease that caused him to keep growing. I think he had problems with his, his thyroid, and he just kept growing. So he wasn't a healthy man. But go back centuries. If you go back many centuries before people had the diseases that we have today and before you know, we had some of the genetic problems that we have from intermarrying and so forth, this was a breed of men who were apparently very large and very powerful. And there's no reason to believe that they did not exist. Um, we don't have their skeletons or bones. They probably would have disintegrated after this much time or been scattered who knows where and buried who knows where. But we do know from the record um, and what we've had written throughout history that there's every reason to believe that there were some very large men and, in ancient history. And this guy kind of tops them all. How tall was he, really? We don't even know that for sure because the measurements we're given are, are ancient measurements. So he may have been even much taller than this. But the, most people believe, looking at those measurements, that it's, he's probably somewhere over nine feet in height. So we know that, first of all. We know he wasn't a little guy, though, in size. He wasn't just a tall, skinny guy. He was a big dude. And we know that because of the armor he had on. He had on a bronze helmet on his head, and he wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. That's 125 pounds on his body. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves, and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. The javelin would be used for defense. He pulled it out, you know, and, and it was a defensive weapon. And it's bronze. And this is a lot of weight on one body. So he's a big, powerful man. But in addition to that, he has armor. This is the Iron Age. You know, this is, it needs to be understood, it needs to be understood at this time that archaeologists have, have shown as well that Israel was behind the times, that the Philistines actually had armor before the Israelites did. In the last battle that they had against each other, only King Saul and Prince Jonathan had armor. Nobody else had it. And this dude comes out, and he looks like Iron Man. You know, and what would that be like? Pretty scary stuff. He, is, he looks basically invincible. Now listen to some of his other weapons. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod. That means it had grooves in it so he could spin it and throw it far with accuracy. Um, and its, its iron point weighed 600 shekels or, or 15 pounds. The tip of it, just the tip of it alone, was like a flame and weighed 15 pounds. Imagine if he dropped that thing on you. He didn't have to hit somebody with it. He just drops it on him and he might knock him over. It was a big spear. Who knows how heavy that whole thing was. And, and then he had a shield bearer that went ahead of him. Now, Goliath stood and he shouted to the ranks of Israel. He's going to talk smack. You know, it's just like a boxing match or MMA or something. He, he's going to use psychological warfare, and he's going to shout at them. He's going to try to demean them and make them look bad. This is representative warfare here. So he says, he shouts across to them in the valley, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul or the slaves, literally, of Saul? 
Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Representative warfare in the ancient world was not uncommon. But what we always wonder is if anybody did say, oh, you won, we'll become your slaves. Every example we have in ancient history is that they all ran afterwards. So it was more of a psychological victory for them to do this. It's also been mentioned in the last battle, the Philistines got whipped pretty thoroughly by the Israelites, and so they probably didn't want to waste the lives of any more men. And so they put their strongest man forward and said, come on and fight him. And so what did the Israelites do? Verse 11, on hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. They got frightened. They were afraid of big Goliath. Well, who wouldn't be? But somebody needed to stand up. You know who should have stood up at this time? The hero of the battle of the Michmash, the last battle. A brave soldier, the hero of Israel at that time, guy who had more baseball cards out than anybody else, Jonathan. Why didn't Jonathan stand up to fight? Nobody really knows. Uh, it's, it's suspected that possibly is because he was demoralized by his father's behavior. His father was king, but his father had fallen away from God. Over willful disobedience, over a long time of disobeying God and being very arrogant and trying to do things his way, God had finally taken his power away from Saul, and Saul had been oppressed by an evil spirit and in, in the process began to have really um, mental illness. He was narcissistic, he was arrogant, and he was really doing some very irrational behavior, and he wasn't following God. So Jonathan doesn't stand up. Saul, at this time, is in his late 50s. He's not the guy for the battle, but where was his courage? If anybody should have stood up, it should have been him, not David. He should have stood up and said, okay, I'll fight him. If I die, I die, but I'm not going to let God be humiliated by this man who's calling us out and him out. I'll fight him. And if he had done so, don't you think Jonathan would have said, hey, Dad, I'll take care of it. Let me do it. Or somebody else would have stepped forward. If you're in leadership, people will follow your example. Saul's was not a very good one. A couple thoughts came to my mind as I was looking at this section. One is one that you often hear, and I think it's very applicable to this passage, is what are you most afraid of? What are you most afraid of? Bully on the block? I still remember the name, Jeff Smith. I had to wrestle him twice in high school. I swear the guy was 30 years old. He had a full beard. He was a giant. I mean, I, you, know, you always have people like that in your life that you are a little afraid of. And as you grow up, it takes different forms. It could be sin that you're afraid of. A person told me recently that they find that they, they have that liquor drawer and they can keep away from it most of the time, but at least two days out of the week, they can't stop drinking. What are you afraid of? Is it the loss of a job, the loss of work, taking the SAT? Is it the loss of family? What are you afraid of? And what do you do with that fear? Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 through 7, Paul says what to do. He says, be anxious in nothing, but in everything by prayer and um, intercession with thanksgiving. Present your request to God, and the peace of God will transcend um, your understanding. Uh, God gives us peace when we give our concerns to him. We need to take all the things we're concerned about and talk to him about them and give them to him and lay them at his feet. Saul didn't do this. 
He was trying to deal with it on his own, in his own human flesh, and it didn't work out well for him, and it didn't work out well for Israel. The second thing I would say is if you are a leader, lead by example. I mean, that comes in our homes as parents. Um, we lead. The way we, we behave has an impact on our children. And if you're a leader at a job or in any area of life, uh, you have people that are under you that you're responsible for in some way, lead by example. I've said it before, but I think it's worth saying again. It's very important for a leader. When things go well, you give credit to your people. When things go bad, you take the blame. If you're a sacrificial leader and you're willing to stand up for your people, people will die for you. But you can see in Saul's case, nobody's willing to die for him because Saul's all about Saul, like most leaders are. So we move to the next section, and we meet David again. David is sent to the battlefield, verses 12 through 19, and we're going to just look at the first two verses here. It says, Now David was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time, he was old and well advanced in years. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war. And it goes on to talk a little bit about that. But what's important here is that uh, Ephrathah was the ancient name of Bethlehem, and the whole area was still known as Ephrathah. And Bethlehem was kind of this little obscure village. But in this little obscure village had come Ruth and Boaz. You ever heard of the Book of Ruth? The Book of Ruth is based on this. They were the grandparents of Jesse. And Jesse, the, the saying that he was advanced in years, may also be interpreted as saying that he was prominent within that little town, that little village. And he had sheep and so forth. And we learned that David was his youngest son and he would tend the sheep for his father. And in the last chapter, chapter 16, Samuel, the great prophet, priest, and former judge of Israel came to town. He had recently told Saul that he was, God was taking the kingdom away from Saul, that he would eventually lose his kingdom and his dynasty because he had not followed him. And Saul would lose his power. And that's exactly what happened. Now Samuel made an interesting visit to the little town of Bethlehem. And he brought together the eight brothers, but actually he only brought seven together at first because Jesse didn't think he wanted his youngest son. In those days, you would always, you know, usually give the honor to the oldest. But that wasn't what happened, right? They brought in David, who was 15, and Samuel said, you are going to be the future king of Israel. And he anointed him right there. It was private, it was secretive, but he prepared him for that. Now, David, we talked about what David was like in those days. What would he be like for us today? Well, he's kind of like a guy who's maybe his dad lives on a farm and he works on the farm and he serves with the FFA. Maybe he does a little bit of rodeo. Maybe he's a, a wrestling champ or a quarterback of the football team, very athletic. But at the same time, he loves music. He plays his guitar. He writes songs. He leads the worship band in church. That's kind of a picture of what David would have been like as a boy. And he was caught up with talking about God all the time in this very dark and barbaric world. And so what happens is they hear about him, and he's brought to Saul. And he plays music for Saul, and it soothes Saul's savage soul. And Saul is able to kind of relax and chill when David does the music. The next verse that we have, verse 14, actually says that David went back and forth. And we get the picture that he was going back and forth often to Gibeah where Saul was at. He'd go back and forth with Bethlehem to Gibeah. And when Saul would be doing well, he wouldn't be there. If Saul went out to battle, he probably wasn't always there. So there may be long periods of times that he was separated from Saul, but he was going back and forth. So that's the picture we have of David. And now scholars think that several years have passed. David is probably about 18 years of age. 
right at the age where he could become a warrior like his older brothers. And his father says, we haven't heard from them for a while. In fact, Goliath would intimidate them for 40 days. And so he says, son, you know, the, the, um, our connection with the internet isn't working, um, so we're going to have to send you down there, give me some news, but also bring some of our delicacies, our cliff bars and other things to them so they can have a snack and encourage them, lift them up. So he says, all right, dad. So he takes his wagon, he's on his way, and he travels 15 miles, 15 miles. He's tired. He gets there, he got up early in the morning and he's tired, but his heart starts pumping. You know, the adrenaline rolls. He's never seen a battle before. And everybody's lined up in battle formation. He runs up and he sees his brothers. He probably hugs and kisses them. Remember, very affectionate um, Hebrew culture. So they probably hug and kiss. How are you? They're all excited. And then all of a sudden, there's this shadow of the giant. And everybody drops back. One of the thoughts I had here is that God uses each life experience for what he has prepared for us in advance. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, Verse 10, uh, he says that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God has prepared for us in advance. God has prepared you for things in advance. Before David was born, God already knew uh, this battle was going to take place. In many ways, and as I've said before, it's almost like our life has already been lived and now everything's playing out in slow motion. That's how much God knows what's happening. That's how much he's in control. It's a wild thought that he's foretold the future. And so God is working through this in David's life, and he's working through it in yours. And if that be the case, then that means that every experience is important. My great-grandma Hansen lived to an elderly age. I remember even in my high school years, she'd pat me on the knee and say, RJ, she always called me RJ, which was my childhood name. She'd say, RJ, she said, one day, you know, things, you know, God's gonna, you know, things are going to, she didn't say God's going to use you, but she would say, every experience you have is, is a good experience. Every job you have is going to prepare you for the next. It was good advice. When I look back on my life, I can see how God used every experience I had all through my life to form me into who I am today. Nothing was a waste. Even the things I did wrong and made mistakes in, he taught me lessons through those. And so that as I stand here today, it's fascinating to me to see that I never would have seen myself doing this growing up. And yet I feel like everything has converged to where I'm, where I'm supposed to be. Think about that. Think about your spouse coming into your life. Think about your friends. Think about your different experiences and jobs, how they all come together. And when you're young, be especially in tune to the fact that everything matters here. You know, we, everything you do, you may seem like you're wasting your time, you know, working at that job that you're working at or doing work around the house or having to do homework. But everything you do builds character and helps you to discover what you're good in and what you're not and helps you to develop what you're good in and so forth. So it all is worthwhile. It was for David. He was out there with the sheep. But there's a play on word, by the way. They, in the literary sense, they keep playing on the idea that he was a shepherd and that he will be a shepherd. Because you see, the time he spent with the sheep helped prepare him to know how to work hard, to have character, and how to lead. It became a great lesson in leadership for him. We move to the next section. David accepts the challenge. And um, David really, basically, David looks at this and he says, why are you guys doing this? And he just keeps talking about, this is horrible. This is embarrassing. He goes on and on. And somebody says, hey, uh, the king says that if anybody fights Goliath um, and he lives, he may have his daughter in marriage 
and he'll give him some financial compensation. David doesn't seem to be much concerned. He just, he says, I want to just know more. So he just keeps talking. And eventually his brother pipes up, his older brother, Eliab. And it's sad because this is the only time that Eliab is quoted in all of the Bible for posterity. So, you know, always be careful what you say when it's on tape um, because it may be the only thing people have one day. That's the only one. But Eliab says, uh, his oldest brother says this. He says uh, in verse 28, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep? See, playing again on the sheep theme, those few sheep in the desert. I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now, before we're too hard on Eliab, remember, he kept the fact that his brother had been anointed king, he kept that secret. It appears he never told anyone. And later, it appears that he actually fought for his brother. But here's the problem. He's the older brother. I'm an older brother. And I can sympathize with him. Imagine when Samuel came, he thought that he was going to be the one made king. And his peewee brother, his 15-year-old brother, is made the king. Eliab is said to be a tall, regal-looking man. He's a big, powerful warrior. And he's being humiliated by Goliath. And it's the lowest moment of his life, almost. He's so ashamed of himself. And then his little brother comes and says, I can fight him, I can fight him. And he's like, <laughs> he's like you pipsqueak, you get out of here. You don't know what you're talking about. And, and David just says back to me, just, it's like the brother's going back and forth. Now what have I done? Can I even speak? And you see them kind of having a little bit of sibling rivalry here. But here's the situation. David's oldest brother, whom he probably really looked up to, is now saying, I, I, don't, I don't trust you. You can't do this. Everybody is saying, you can't do this. You ever been in a situation like that where everybody in the room says, you can't do this. We don't agree with you. You're the only one who's taking that stand. Your older brother says, you, you can't do this. And what we typically do is we say, well, I really wanted to, but you make a good point. You're probably right. If you're not doing it, I probably shouldn't do it. But David presses on. He's willing to be the only man, not only in, only in the room, but in the entire army, to stand up and say, something's got to be done. And so they take him to Saul, and Saul, who has kind of a tender side to him um, peri periodically, looks at him and basically says, you're just a boy. You're just an 18-year-old boy. This is suicidal. I mean, he's been fighting since he was a boy, probably since he was four, given his size. You know? <laughs> and so who are you to fight him? So David needs to give his credentials, and he does very eloquently, starting in verse 33. He says, um, I'm sorry, verse 34. Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. And then he uses God's personal intimate name, which is very important here. And when you see the word Lord capitalized, L-O-R-D, that is in reference to the Hebrew translation, which is Yahweh, which means the great I am or the self-existent one. And he's basically saying the self-existent one, the one who created everything who's in complete control, delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear and will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go, and Yahweh be with you. Saul gets all fired up. And it's ironic because he says, Yahweh be with you because Yahweh isn't with Saul. 
but Yahweh is with David, and that's what he's talking about here. Um, kind of reminds you of, you know, lions and tigers and bears, you know. But there weren't tigers, but there were apparently lions and bears in those days in Israel. There aren't anymore, but there's so much written about them in ancient literature that it appears that they were there and probably migrated out of the area at some time um, or were killed or whatever. But there were lions and bears in his area, and he had to fight against them to protect himself, and he does. And he trusts God in protecting himself against them, and he defeats them. And it shows that he was already a great athlete, uh, a, great, a very powerful man, a very courageous man, and he wins the battle over them. So really powerful stuff that we learn about David here. And he also, by calling him an uncircumcised um, Philistine, in his idea, the circumcision was a sign of a covenant agreement with God. So those that were uncircumcised, like the Philistines, it was his way of saying the filthy Philistine. So he's kind of talking him down here, and he's saying God can, God can win this battle. So Saul decides to dress David in armor, and the armor will help David because, see, he, this, is the only, this is the best armor of Israel. He's going up against this guy that's like Iron Man, and so he's going to put on some armor, and it seems like that's what he ought to do. But David says no because the armor is uncomfortable. And there's some important things to notice here. Uh, first of all is it's amazing that he'd be willing to say no to the armor because he must have felt you know, pretty insecure not having any armor. But the second thing is that in that day, and I didn't know this. This is a new thing for me. I learned that they believed that uh, you were imbued with the essence of the person whose armor you wore. So in other words, if he wore Saul's armor then Saul would get some credit for his victory. And so Saul may be, the reason why Saul is doing this is partly not so much to save David, but for himself to look good. And uh, David says, no, it doesn't work. No matter what, it doesn't work. Another thing very important, I remember hearing Stu Weber say this in a sermon, and I've often thought about it, is Saul was a giant for Israel. He was a head taller than everybody else in Israel. That's part of the play here, you know, one giant and another giant, and, and one giant doesn't want to come out to play. Uh, because he's so frightened. But Saul was at least a head taller than everybody else in Israel. So David tries on his armor. If David was trying on his armor, wasn't David a pretty good size to be able to even attempt to try that armor on? He wasn't a little boy. He was a big, country-strong boy. He was an 18-year-old that was a probably like his brothers, who are described as all being very tall, David is probably tall and muscular and athletic and powerful, but not big enough to fit, nevertheless, into this, the, the, the armor. So he says, no, I'm not going to do it, but he's going to move ahead anyway. Um, some thoughts here. How do you prepare for a challenge or crisis? How do you prepare for a challenge or crisis in your life? You say, well, I don't have one, but that's the point. You never know when it's going to happen. You could go home today and get a bad phone call. I found out recently my, um, my uncle, Drew Marriage, he's only, he's only a three years older than me, just recently passed away. He's like 57. You just never know when something's going to hit you or your family. So how do we prepare for that? How do we prepare for those really tough times that are going to happen to all of us? David knew how to do that. He prepared in solitude for him. He spent hours and hours singing to God, praising him, memorizing the scriptures, playing his guitar, writing music, until he had a close, intimate relationship with the God who made him. And that's what carried him through the challenge that he had. 
don't know if you saw it, the Modesto Bee had a big story on Dave Dravecki. Uh, my wife and I, Carrie and I, actually saw Dave Dravecki pitch his comeback game. It was amazing at Candlestick Park. He, lost, he ultimately lost his one arm, his left arm, his throwing arm as a pitcher um, with the San Francisco Giants. He lost it to cancer. And he writes now about how, you know, his relationship with God was what got him through that, and that's why he continues to minister to people today. We need the Lord, and we need one another. So I just encourage you to grow in your relationship with one another, help hold each other accountable, spend time with God. And you may say, I don't have a lot of time. You may be a single mom who's taking care of kids and so forth. And I understand that some people have less time than others. But everybody can spend at least, you know, 10 minutes a day reading the Bible, memorizing a passage, and then thinking about that passage and running it over and chewing it over all day long in your mind and praying all day long. We can do that at least. So I encourage you to spend that time to prepare you because hard times are coming. hate to tell you, but they are, and you want to prepare for those times. Now comes the fun part. David defeats Goliath. Okay, so we pick it up in verse 40. Uh, It says, Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. So what he does, this is where, you know, already you might have seen the story is a little bit different than the story that we hear in Sunday school. And the next thing he does is also very different. Remember, he, he takes his little wooden slingshot and his rubber band, and he tries to shoot it at him, right? That's kind of how it is in our pictures that we have of David. But in reality, he went to the stream and he found five smooth stones, each of them probably a little bit bigger than a baseball, each of them probably weighing about five pounds. And then he put them in a leather you know, harness, so to speak, a little pouch that they fit in, and then he had two um, cords that were connected to it. And he put those cords in his hand and he began to swing them like this. You swing them around to get as much momentum as you could and then you let it go. It's estimated that you could throw one of those rocks about 95, 100 miles per hour. It's kind of like, you know, Kyle Peterson, you know, the, the um, track phenom at Oakdale High School. He, he takes, a, uh, he, he takes a, a disc and he spins around and he throws it, what? He took third in state, 170 feet or something like that. He's probably similar to that. You know, he's a young guy like that, you know, maybe around the same size from our perspective, and he... Instead of throwing his discus, he's swinging around a weapon that he's going to fling at somebody. So that's what David had. So a little bit different than the story that we're accustomed to. And then we move on to verse 42, and Goliath looks at him. What do you think Goliath thinks? All Goliath sees, by the way, is he, doesn't, he has the pouch on him, but all he sees is his shepherd's staff. So he sees this guy walking up like in his long robe or whatever he's wearing, you know, and, and his shepherd's staff walking up to him. And he, this is the guy he's got to fight. Goliath, just, he just can't believe it. And he, he looked David over, and he saw that he was only a boy, ruddy and handsome, and he despised him. Um, he saw that he was only a boy. He was ruddy, which could mean that his hair was red, and that's a tradition that David had red hair. But more likely, it's in reference to his cheeks being red. He didn't, couldn't grow a beard yet. He didn't shave. He hadn't bought his first razor, okay? He was, his face were kind of, you know, he kind of, you know, peachy and cream complexion still. And he looks at him and he says, you're a boy. You're a boy. And, and David's very handsome. It always says he's handsome, more than any guy in the Bible, so he must have been quite a hunk. Um, <laughs> so he looks at him and, and he says, um, am I a dog? Which was the lowest of animals at that time. Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And he cursed David by his gods. Now he's in very dangerous territory cursing 
his, you know, his gods against David's God. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And David, and David could talk smack. David was very eloquent, so you don't want to mess with him. I mean, he, when he speaks, he has something to say. So David says to him, you come against me shouting at him. You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of Yahweh Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. I come to you with Yahweh Almighty, literally in, in Hebrew, it's Yahweh of the host. I'm saying I have the army of Israel behind me and I have the angelic army, the army of angels behind me. Who do you have, dude? Look who I have and look who you have. You're in trouble, not me. And then he goes on and he says, um, he says, today, he says, this day Yahweh will hand you over to me and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. Whoa, that what they really did in those days? These are barbaric times. Now, today, we take kids on a field trip, and we say, let's get a head count. Da, da, one, two. In those days, when they said, let's get a head count, <laughs> had a very different meaning. And that's literally what it was. That's how they would determine how many people they killed in battle. So it was just part of the culture. That's what you do. And so he says... Um, he goes on, he says, Today I will give the carcasses, not just you, but of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that Yahweh saves, for the battle is Yahweh's, and he will give all of you into our hands. Pretty bold, huh? David tells him, and he's fired up, and you can just see, you know, he's getting himself fired up as he goes. And so they're facing off to each other, and, and apparently Goliath is moving in on him, and David starts to move in on Goliath, and they're closing ranks, and the people are watching, and people, you know, his brothers are panting, wondering, oh my goodness, what? And, and Liab's probably thinking, I probably shouldn't have said that. And, and now the battle's about to happen. And it says in verse 48, as the Philistine moved closer to attack David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag, he, and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So the Philistine's coming at him and David comes, maybe he swings around once and then he swings it as hard as he can and bam, he throws it and it's miraculous. Angel's probably guiding it. His first shot hits him right between the eyes probably, right somewhere here. Now people will say if he had a helmet on, how could it penetrate? But the truth is he could have taken it off or could have hit him lopsided or I'll tell you what, if you're that close to somebody with some of the ancient forms of uh, metal, which is probably not as powerful as we have today, and somebody's throwing a rock at you at 95 to 100 miles per hour, and it hits you right in the head, it's going gonna, it's gonna to sink in. He hit him hard, and, and Goliath's coming toward him, so Goliath trips and he falls right on his face. Now, Goliath is not probably dead yet. What does David do? This is the part they cut out, they censor from um, Sunday school. So watch your kids. This is PG-13. David runs over to him, and he grabs his sword, which, by the way, was probably very heavy, and he picks it up, showing how powerful and strong David was, and he goes over, and he cuts off his head, knocks off the helmet, grabs him by the hair, pulls his head up in the air, and goes, yeah! And then everybody screams, and they all go charging, just like in the movies, and they go after the Philistines, and it's barbaric, brutal warfare. And they kill as many as they can, and they take their weapons, and they take their goods, and they bring them back to themselves. 
And David, it says later in verse 50, uh, verse 54, I think it is, David later takes this head and brought it to Jerusalem. We don't know if that means that he kept it as, a, as sort of a, uh, you know, as a relic, a memory of what he had done, and he took it with him when he became king, which is kind of gruesome, but he might have, or if he actually showed it to the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem in those days as a sign of, you guys keep away from us, don't mess with us. And then it says that um, he put the Philistines' weapons into his own tent, which should read, he took the Philistines' weapons and he put them in the Philistines' tent and he basically took the tent for himself. He didn't have a tent yet. Now he has Goliath's tent as his and everything that belongs to Goliath is David's. So a little bit different than we sometimes um, see the story, right? Um, What are some thoughts on that? What are some challenges you've faced? What are some victories you've had in your life that inspire you when you think about it? I'll tell you one that inspires me is this church. We started this church. We weren't ready. We weren't prepared. We just kind of went for it. People came in. Many of you here joined us, and we went together, and we believed God for big things. And God has done some incredible things in this church. I can't believe it. Miracle after miracle, the things that have kept us going and and built things up, it's unbelievable to see where we're at at this point, how well we're doing, and how excited we are about our future. How do you get there? Just trust in God. I mean, we could spend an hour just going over story by story of the different things that happened to get us through sometimes week by week some of the things God has done to get us to this point. Very exciting. God is working among us. But here's the thing, like David, whose reputation is at stake in this stuff? It's not your reputation. We've got to forget this. It's not your reputation, and it's not my reputation. It's God's reputation. If we do what the Bible says step by step, then we trust God. And he's the one who gets us through. And it's his reputation that's at stake because we're trusting in him. And so that's why we need to defend him and do the very best we can for him in all things. Um, the other thing that comes to my mind is do you defend God's name? David did. Have you ever been in that awkward situation where people are talking and they're, they're talking smack about God or about our faith, about Jesus, about the Bible, about some moral things that we know are wrong, and you're sitting there and saying, oh, that's not right. I probably should say something. I probably should say something. Oh, they changed the topic. Okay. Right? And we don't stand up. We need people that will stand up for God. We live in, I think, one of the wimpiest cultures in American history. Everybody's afraid to say something. I've never seen it this way so much. Everybody's afraid to say something because they might hurt somebody's feelings, and nobody's being honest. We're so dishonest with each other. And you can say things, nice thing, hard things, in a nice way, and you should. But by all means, don't keep silent. Have the boldness to stand up. David went up and fought Goliath. How hard is it for us to say, I disagree with that? I mean, it, it, and it'll take off like fire like it did for David. I remember when I was in high school, we had one man who stood for Christ that I knew. One man! who would stand up and say, I believe in this stuff, and I disagree with you guys. And we made his life miserable. But out of that, I don't know how many of us came to know the Lord. Our campus just took off, and most of it happened afterwards. That's how I came, committed my life to Christ, as did many other people have an impact. And there were at least 10, 15, 20 of us at one point that were in a Bible study that came out of that. And most of those guys are still walking with the Lord. Are you the one man or the one woman? It's amazing what God can do when one person will will be bold enough to follow him.
How do you balance your human abilities and God's supernatural empowering? Gene Getz asks this question in his book, and it's really interesting. It's different than we sometimes think of it. David was a very capable man. He didn't call somebody to this task that wasn't capable. He called a very capable man. But the ability that David had was given to him by God. And the fact that he was able to hit him precisely where he hit him with his first shot was supernatural. There's almost no way that he could have been that accurate, that first shot, everything come together that quickly. But it did, because God was at work. God uses you with the gifts and abilities he's given you. Paul writes in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 about spiritual gifts that he's given each person in this room. Everybody in this room is capable of doing something that somebody else in this room can't do. We all have different unique gifts, and God wants to use each of us. So um, find out what your abilities are and do the best you can with them and use them for God. At the same time, understand that there will be times when God asks you to do things that are out of your comfort zone. When we started this church, it was out of our comfort zone. We were all trained for what we were about to do, but it still scared us. And I think that's how David probably felt. And yet God used it. And I've learned through the years that it's always good to live when you're a little bit out of your comfort zone because then you've got to depend more on God. By the way, another thought on this is that sometimes people mostly, in fact, I'd say most people depend more on their, their gifts, their, their gifts, and they don't depend on God. And the idea is to blend the two. Some people, they spend a lot of time praying, but they don't ever get off their duff and do anything. Other people go and do things, but they don't do it with God. And we want to combine the two where you're praying and asking God's assistance in all you do and giving him thanks for everything you're capable of doing, knowing that it all comes from him. Now, David finally grabs Saul's attention. And what happens here is um, after the whole battle is over and all, Saul wants to know who he is. So he has Abner, his loyal lieutenant, his cousin, um, who is also his, um, his commander of his army, go get David and brings David to him. David is splattered with blood from battle, and he brings David up to him, and he says, Whose son are you, young man? And David said, I am the son of your servant Jesse of Bethlehem. Now, this has raised a curious question in scriptures, uh, become a bit of a controversy, because we know that David had been doing music for Saul for probably three years, so why didn't Saul recognize David? Some people say that it's out of chronological order, which doesn't seem possible, especially because just in this chapter, it was talking about how David was still going back and forth. Some people think... Um, more, more likely that three years he hadn't seen David for a while and David had grown up a lot and he didn't recognize him. But he was talking to him for a while there. Probably the best answer is when they wrote this, they knew the people that were reading it knew what was going on. So they didn't see it as a controversy or they wouldn't have written it this way. Uh, the best understanding is, and actually it's fairly logical, is that Saul was not in his right mind. And Saul was extremely narcissistic, self-centered, and arrogant. In all likelihood, three years ago, he knew who David was. He, they introduced him to him. And then from that point on, David just became the boy who plays the harp for me. Come on, boy. Are you ready? Play your harp. Okay, you can go now. Three years have passed, and he's probably not recalling who David is or really caring that much until this moment. And we see that David, it foreshadows the fact that David's going to have a bigger challenge with Saul than he did with Goliath. And so David looks at him, and he says who he is. And it's a great way to end the chapter. He ends the chapter saying, I am the son of your servant Jesse of Bethlehem. It's almost like David saying, it's like the author telling us, David is in the house. The future king 
has arrived. And that's how the chapter ends. Isn't that a great way to end the chapter? It would be a little bit difficult for children falling asleep after the head-cutting incident, but on the other hand, you leave that part out as a great way to end a chapter for kids. Um, uh, a story time story, but it is really, you can see that it really was a true narrative and a true story. Uh, on this one, the final question I have is, do you know and give credit to others? Saul didn't know his own people. And actually, when you study Saul's life, you'll see that the only people that really are important to Saul are his son, Jonathan, and his cousin, Abner. And almost nobody else is ever mentioned. But when you study David's life, you meet so many people, it's unbelievable. David was constantly finding people, finding what their gifts and abilities were and empowering them. He was constantly affirming people and working with people and bringing somebody else on board. David took care of people. He was a people person. Saul was not. If you are in leadership of any kind, know your people. Get to know them, pray for them, encourage them, find their talents and abilities and empower them to do what they are to do. Get to know people. Know one another in the church. I say this. It was really hard last service because I saw a couple that I forgot their names the third time, and then I got up here and started talking about this. So I, I singled them out and said, I forgot their names, so maybe that'll help me remember. But even if you go back and ask, right, make sure you know. It shows you care. Make sure you know one another and encourage one another. Know the people at the Feed and Seed. Know the people at your favorite restaurants. Know the people at your favorite grocery store. Get to know the people in your life and affirm them when they're doing a good job and encourage them um, and, and do what Saul did not do but what David did. So one more thought on this is a lot of times we think, what could be a bigger challenge than the Goliath challenge? The Bible records one that was bigger, a man on a cross who died. What is the biggest challenge in life? Is it not death? There's no bigger challenge than death. And Jesus overcame death. He rose from the grave to conquer death and sin once and for all. That if we come into relationship with him, we can live with him forever in heaven, but we can also have the power of his spirit in our life, even as David did as an example for us. If with the power of God in him... David is able to defeat Goliath, how much more could we do? Or look at it this way. We have the power in us that rose a man from the grave. If that is the case, is there anything in this life that we should really be afraid of? If we're doing what God wants us to do, we can never lose. And so we need to be more bold in our faith, in our witness, and in our lives. Tell people about God. Invite them to church. Build relationships with people. Encourage them. And don't be afraid to tell people that you know Jesus. Um, because God wants to work in our lives, and he can work in our lives in incredible ways when we trust him with it as David did. If you don't know the Lord, we encourage that you would come and tell us because we'd love to talk to you so you can also know this, this awesome uh, God of the universe. Join me in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much. We thank you that today we're going to have baptisms um, because people have come to know you and they've trusted in you. And I pray if there's anybody else that doesn't know you today, uh, maybe there's some people that are struggling. They, maybe they thought they knew you, but they've never really um, surrendered their lives to you. Um, we pray that they would come today and talk to us. And we thank you for what you did. And um, David's life is an example for us. We're, we're in awe. And then we think of what Jesus did. 
And we pray that you would embolden us, Lord, and help us to trust in you, to be fearful of nothing, because in you we have everything. We thank you for who you are and all you've done for us, and we praise your holy name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.